My name is Anthony Fatsis and welcome to the What The Finance podcast, where we interview finance, trading, investing experts to help you understand current market trends and learn about the intricacies of new and existing assets. Hello and welcome What The Finances to another episode of the What The Finance podcast, where we talk to experts to help gain a greater understanding about what is happening in the world of finance, investing, and markets. So on today's podcast, I'm happy to welcome Felix, uh, who's an experienced investor, founder of the GOAT Academy, and host of Felix and Friends YouTube page. So Felix, thanks for joining the podcast today. Absolute pleasure, Anthony. I'm very, very delighted to be here. Yeah, definitely. I think we're both enjoying the sunny weather in uh, Europe at the moment, which is quite nice. So, uh, <laughs> yeah, we're actually not that far apart by the sounds of it. Yeah, a few hundred kilometers, but uh, probably the closest guest I've had so far. But uh, maybe can you tell the audience a bit more about you know, yourself and your own investment journey and how you've got into where you are today? Sure. Okay. I'm um, not quite sure how far back you want me to start because it's going to take a while. Um, so in, in, in a nutshell, I, um, I, I've done lots of things in, in, in life. Um, I, I was a banker for a little while. I was working in a hedge fund strategy desk in a, in a bank in Hong Kong. Um, I was a corporate lawyer for a little while. I worked in dot-com companies just before that. And then I essentially quit the corporate rat race thing and uh, and essentially started businesses um about about a dozen of them about half of which did very well the other half were terrible and um for the last year and a half or two um i i I started this youtube channel really with the intention of helping people avoid the horrible pitfalls of the financial industry um as as investors i mean so you know there are so many stories. Unfortunately, I, I get emails about every single day. And, and really my intention is for people to just become smarter investors, to be able to look after their money, to be able to know what they're doing, and, and also just have confidence in, in their decisions. So that's sort of really the, the, the very short <laughs> overview of, of, of what this is all about. Yeah, definitely. Because I guess did you have some bad experiences when you were involved in the industry, I guess, that sort of pushed you towards starting your own businesses or? Well, for me, it was actually the, the bad experiences came more before. So when I was clueless and I, I, I just earned my, I think it was first $10,000 or euros or whatever it was then. Uh, and, and what did I do? Well, I went to my bank and I said, I've got some money. What do I do with it? Right. So you get set, sat down by, by some chap who's apparently a financial expert and he shows you brochures and shiny things with charts that go up. So I, I, I did exactly that. So I bought a bunch of funds. I didn't know what the heck they were in hindsight. And this was 1999, which wasn't ideal timing. Um, obviously the dot-com bubble was about to burst and um, all that stuff went down like 50% or something very, very quickly. And the frustration I think I felt as an investor was like, A, I don't really know what I'm doing and I don't really know how to do this better. And then you look back at the brochures and you see, okay, the bank made 5% when I went into it. They made 2% a year and they got a commission from whoever is actually the underlying fund provider. So you kind of like, okay, those guys made almost 10% on this and they have zero alignment with, you know, me being successful in this. They just couldn't care less. And I thought that's really really wrong. Uh, it was, I, I felt quite sort of angry, frustrated about it. And it stopped me investing for some years. I, I didn't do anything after that. So I just didn't know how to do this better. I thought if you invest, you're going to get screwed. And that's, of course, the, the biggest fallacy because investing should make you 95% of your wealth. If you look at wealthy people, they generally have 95% of their wealth from investing and 5% from income or you know their businesses. So when I then later on 
got into to banking almost sort of by accident. Well, I studied economics and law and stuff, but I happened to sort of fall into a, 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 a trading floor of, a, of an investment bank. And suddenly I was around hundreds of people who were young, incredibly successful with their investments. And they were not necessarily like, you know, super, super, super exceptionally smart people. I mean, they were intelligent people, but they were just like you and me. They were just like normal people. And, and they didn't really do anything particularly special, but they understood how the whole system worked. And that's really what for me was the eye open. I was like, okay, there is another way because there are people sitting next to me in their early twenties and they're not just making a lot of money from their job, but they're making way more money from their investments. And they're doing that consistently. So for me, that was the eye open. And that's what kind of way I learned where I met a lot of people. Um, and then I fortunately bumped into some options traders who were very kind enough to share with me actually how they do it and, and what the strategy is, which is exact, again, the exact opposite of what's generally being peddled to retail investors. So for various reasons, I didn't want to sit at a desk from 7 a.m. till 9 p.m. every single day. Um, but I, I learned a great deal from that. I learned a lot of technical stuff from that. And that, that was really an eye-opener. So I always thought in the back of my mind, I wish we could teach everybody this. Um, and I think the world would be a better place, quite frankly. And I think people would feel more confident and, and more satisfied. And they wouldn't have to work in jobs that they didn't necessarily uh, love. Uh, because actually, really, everybody should be financially free. Um, it really doesn't take a lot, especially if you've worked for 10 or 20 years. So when COVID hit, and suddenly I wasn't traveling every week uh, anymore, and I was just sitting at home going, okay, what do I do now? I thought, well, why don't we do this? And somebody suggested to me, well, why don't you do a YouTube channel? And I thought, that sounds crazy. Uh, I, I never really do that kind of thing. But we, I did, and I thought, let's give it two weeks. This was over Christmas. And um, what happened? Well, it, it really took off. And that was really like the, the delightful thing is that people really responded to this kind of information and to actually understanding how it works and understanding how the macro ties in and how you can actually trade and how you can rest for the long term. So that's kind of what this whole uh, GOAT Academy thing is all about. Um, and, and it's just been a tremendous community and really, really tremendous people who are just sharing and, and learning and, and wanting to help people. It really, that's really what it's all about. But yeah, I think it's quite interesting. You know, you mentioned there that your first experience really impacted your investing and actually sort of drove you away from that. And I think they say that's quite common for, you know, it's really about when you invest, you look at people who invested in the 50s and 60s, markets went nowhere, they were really turned away from it, whereas people in the 80s and 90s, it shot up massively. So I guess you could say similar to today, we're seeing a bit of a drop and, you know, potentially it could be a further drop. So people might be influenced by that as well and sort of driven away from the stock markets and investing. Unfortunately, I think you're spot on. Uh, I think if you look at the, 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 the data that we have, all the retail money that came in in 2020 has left the market. I mean, like there's a net outflow of, of retail money now in the market. And that's, it's tragic because what the retail investor tends to repeat is buy at the top, when all headlines are about the stock market and everyone's excited and, you know, your neighbor is a stock investing genius and, and everybody's buying Tesla or whatever it is at the time. And then as the market comes down, typically 30% down is sort of the pain point where people jump out and they just think, oh my God, this is t terrible. And they then usually repeat the process. So they wait for the bear market to end. We're back in a rally. Everyone's exuberant. And then they buy it again at the top of the market. And it's, it's, I always say it's like just, Drive up to Wall Street, 
find some guys in those little midtown jackets and, you know, hand them a water cash. Like, that's exactly what you're doing. And I think if you visualize that, maybe that'll help you a little bit to stop yourself from doing that. But the problem, really, that I think that causes that is a lack of confidence in your choices. Because you bought something because the guy you play tennis with or, you know, the guy you would have, have drinks with on Friday uh, bought it. And, and that was really your rationale. You didn't really understand it. You don't know what... ROIC stands for, or, you know, you, 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 you kind of just don't really have a proper understanding of the, of the business. And I think, I wish that was something we were taught at school, and we're not. I mean, I studied economics. They don't teach you that. I went to law school. They don't teach you that. Like, literally, there isn't really any way you learn that, perhaps outside of finance degrees. Um, and is that going to change? Unlikely, because it's such a profitable industry. And the industry overall fails and underperforms, right? 95% of fund managers, mid-caps, small-caps, large-caps, underperform the market over any longer period of time. Yet they don't get fired and their clients don't pull their money around because they don't know where to put it. So it's, it's really one of the few industries in the world where you can continuously underperform and get rewarded for it. Uh, and, and obviously there is an incentive for that to keep going, right? So people don't want to change it. Um, a lot of people making a lot of money on that, and there's a strong lobby group. Um, I mean, I don't want to go too conspiratorially here, but, you know, essentially there is a big incentive for this not to change. So I, I don't think it really will. So I think we just have to take it onto our own hands. And the, the beauty of the availability of information now and access to people with YouTube and podcasts and, and, and everything else out there is that we can. And I think it was much harder in the past. So really what I would highly encourage everybody to do is just, you just have to master this. Like this should be nine times the amount of salary that you get. So you go to work eight hours a day. You should really be spending 10 times more time investing. And people tend to spend 10 minutes a year doing it or something like that. So I think... Just accepting that no one's going to fix it for you. The government isn't going to do it. The industry is unlikely to change dramatically. And you just have to take responsibility for it. And when you do, the reward is enormous. I mean, it's incredibly satisfying. So that's really kind of what I try and encourage people to do. And then obviously give them the tools. And, and, and we, we've got lots of that, lots of free programs, lots of materials, a sort of daily education. And, and then, of course, also we have premium programs and coaching and everything else for people who want to get you know, much, much further. Yeah, definitely. You can say that the people who are, you know, the stocks and the investments they're attracted to are the Arcs and the Palantirs and, you know, Neo and some of these companies, they're good companies, but they're obviously attracted maybe at the wrong times potentially as well. Well, I think it's always a question of allocation. Like if you look at the big funds, um, if they invest in, say, a Neo or a Palantir, it's probably less than half a percent of the, of the assets that they have. Whereas you look at the retail investors and it's often 20, 30, 50, 70, you know, sometimes even a hundred percent. And, the beauty of having access to the U.S. stock market, like the greatest stock market there ever was, is that you can invest in a number of different companies that are great, different but great, different sectors, and you can make a lot of money in the long run. But our psychology initially wants us to find the one horse that's going to really win. And unfortunately, it's very, very unlikely that you're going to find that horse and that it's going to perform consistently better than everything else. And 
it takes a little bit of understanding of kind of portfolio management and, and diversification and everything before you see that. Like for me, I have about 30 stocks or something like that. Last year, four of those stocks generated 80 or 90% of all the returns. And the rest basically did nothing. I mean, there were one or two detractors, but the rest basically did nothing. The previous year, it was basically the same. Four or five stocks made me all the money. The other 25 didn't do anything. Now, whether the same stocks? Nope. <laughs> and will they be the same stocks this year? Probably not. So, so if you had only picked one of them, what were your chances of making money, right? It was one in 30, essentially. So it's, it's kind of difficult to really understand that until you really understand what actually drives stock prices, what actually drives stock value. And it's not the noise and the headlines. Um, that does move it in the short term, but in the long run, it's actually the underlying performance of that business and, you know, how well has it run and how well diversified are they and, you know, uh, what's, what's their actual mode, what's their technological advantage and, you know, is it easy for their customers to switch to somebody? Say you, say you put elevators into skyscrapers. How easy is it to switch maintenance contracts on those elevators? Well, it's virtually impossible, right? Because you're not going to rip that thing out. So that's a brilliant business. I mean, the initial manufacturing of the elevator is a terrible business, but the maintenance contract for the next 30 years is a brilliant business. So there is lots of stuff like that that doesn't, isn't as sexy as a Palantir or as a Tesla or something, but it's actually fundamentally a really, really good business to invest in. Yeah, interesting. So in terms of when you are looking for companies, I guess, to invest in, would that be your main strategy? Just, you know, maybe look at the finances, are they growing? What's the moats or all those sort of things? Yeah, I think it's really the same. I always say, imagine your best friend comes up to you and says, hey, will you invest $10,000 into my business? What are you going to ask him? Right? You're going to ask him, what's your product? Who are your clients? Where are you selling this? Who is your competitor? And what are your margins? That's what you're going to want to know, right? And it's precisely the same process if you're investing in Microsoft or something. You're still going to want to ask the same questions. And marvelously, all that data is available for free if you go to go into Google, and you can find that out. Um, so the kind of businesses I like are essentially ones with repetitive revenue streams from the same clients. Um, that they, it's hard for them to switch. It's hard for them to shake that. Uh, so some sort of dominance is definitely a good thing. Um, generally, having been around for a while is a good thing. If you can see that they survived a bunch of recessions, uh, that's a good thing. Um, and, and, you know, there are, you know, there are sp in, in, in the medical space, there are companies, or, you know, we're just talking about, you know, elevators, or uh, um, there is a fantastic um, precision scaling company, for example, that I quite like. And there is these really random little businesses. I mean, not little, they're all billion-dollar businesses. Or, of course, you know, something like a Microsoft. I mean, Microsoft, I think, signs up two, two to two and a half thousand clients a day. And um, when was the last time you cancelled your 365 Office subscription when you thought, I'm not, no longer going to open Excel files? I mean, it's, it's, it's fairly unlikely to happen, right? And in fact, they don't even send you an invoice or a notice. They just send you an email saying, you've been billed. And they don't even specify the amount. It's brilliant. <laughs> and, um, and on top of that, you know, the whole cloud thing is, again, very, very much the same. Or look at something like, and I'm, I'm not saying people should obviously go out and run and buy these businesses, but just to give you some ideas, Intuit, for example, is a is a, an accounting software in the US 80 90% of all SMEs in the US use it now 
go talk to a business owner or to an accountant and say, I'm going to change your accounting software. They'd rather tear their own hair out. It's just not something that you want to do because you lose all the comparison points. It's a huge pain in the neck to do it. So people stick with it pretty much no matter what the subscription price is or whether it's necessarily the best business. They've just got that client base. So there is a lot of there are a lot of products out there, a lot of businesses out there that aren't necessarily particularly sexy, but people use them. People have become accustomed to them and they just have that following and, and people don't want to switch. So how do you find that out? Well, gross margins is a great place to start. If your gross margin is really high, it means you're doing something well. Because if there was lots of competition, people were switching all the time, your gross margin would get eroded. So I sometimes wonder, why do people invest in supermarkets, right? You've got single-digit gross, gross margins. Well, if inflation hits you uh, and you lose a couple of percentage points of that, you start losing money. If you are, you know, Microsoft or something, or say a MasterCard, I think their gross margin is 98% or something like that, you know? Uh, cost isn't really a, a factor for them. They don't really care. So I think we all get led to the shiny stuff. The, oh my God, this is going to revolutionize whatever. It's going to cure cancer and all of that. And that's all very well. And you can invest in that. But I think it's about diversification. It's about position sizing rather than, you know, chucking it all on, on, on some bet, essentially. Yeah, well, I think there's a famous, um, I think it was started with betting, but now people use it for, 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 for uh, portfolio management, the Kelly criterion, which is saying, you know, the less likely something's to happen, the less money you should allocate on it, because if it does happen, you know, you're going to make more money. And I guess you could say with some of these growth stocks, you better, obviously, each their own, but most people are better off probably putting less into it, because if it does become the company they think it's going to become, they're going to make many, many returns. But if it doesn't, there's not as much risk. And, and I, I'd agree with you. Unfortunately, our psychology is like, well, but what if it goes up a thousand times? <laughs> you know, I'll be a billionaire. Let's put it all on red. Um, and, and that's, I think really the only way to change that is to, to, for people to fundamentally understand what moves, what moves a stock and what their risks are and, and that you can actually get really tremendous returns with your more, you know, boring tickers. Um, it doesn't always have to be uh, the, the, the latest thing. Yeah, because I was, um, you know, for me, I was looking at a company, I think Booking Holdings, which has had like 2000% returns over the last 10 years. And I, and I only looked at it yesterday. I was like, holy crap, like this is a company that, you know, it's just travel. It's just online travel, nothing too crazy, but that's a company as well that's had massive returns, high margins. So, you know, there's so many companies out there. You just have to sort of find them, do the research, and then you can go from there. Uh, absolutely. And yeah, they're, really, I mean, in, in a sense, they're probably not that many. I'd say they're probably 50 or 100 or something that are really great companies. And the rest of the S&P 500 is pretty average. Um, though, having said that, if you don't want to do the, the, do the research, I mean, just, just buy the, buy the index, right? It's a really easy thing to do. And that way you're still going to make, you know, eight, nine percent a year or something without doing anything whatsoever. So I think that's probably still better than buying most actively managed funds. Although there are some exceptions. I mean, there, there are some really good ones, but it's, it's, it's the needle in the haystack. Yeah, definitely. And you mentioned before that, you know, a lot of your trading uh, is options trading. So um, I'm not sure if you can talk and, you know, you said you have lots of courses, but can you tell us a bit more about your strategy and I guess how you take advantage of options? Sure. So I, I'm not a fan of stock trading. I, I don't think it's generally a good idea. I think stocks, the advantage we have is we can buy it and we can hold it through thick and thin. So I enjoy a bear market. I enjoy a recession because it just means great stocks are cheaper for longer and I can buy them every week at lower prices. It's like, uh, 
it's like a, a never-ending summer sale kind of thing. So I think, again, the psychology there, you kind of need to reverse the initial reaction. Oh, my God, it's down 30%. You know, let's run. No, actually, if it's a good business, that's exactly what you want. Uh, the reason I like options trading is it's probably the only method where retail investors with our more limited access to information than everything else are actually able to generate very high returns with very low risk. So every trade, the, so my strategy in a nutshell is a, is, a, is a copied and somewhat adjusted process of what Wall Street options traders do. Uh, but you know, you can literally do it with a thousand dollars or a thousand pounds or whatever it is. Um, we only do trades with an 80% probability or more of success. That's the starting point. Um, we only sell options. We never buy options, which is again where retail tends to go wrong. Um, and I'll gladly explain the reason for that in a sec. Um, and we are market neutral. So I don't really care whether the stock goes up or down. So for example, last week, Netflix reported, um, and I set up a trade that Netflix would, I think I thought it was, would fall. Uh, in fact, I think it went up 20%. I made still the maximum profit on that trade. And I was wrong by 20%. And you can't do that with stocks. With stocks, it's binary. You are right or you're wrong, right? It's 50-50. Whereas with options, you can make that 80 or 90% in your favor. And that's really something that obviously takes a little bit of explaining and there's a little bit of a learning curve to it. But it isn't hugely technical. Um, anybody can do it. Anybody can understand it. And it also takes very little time. You don't need to stare at charts. You can do this in an hour or two a week. Um, I've got um, mentees who do it on Saturdays because they have very busy jobs. And then during the week, they don't do anything at all. And, you know, my options portfolio is up 121% so far this year. And we're just, you know, over half halfway through the year. And that isn't a fluke. That isn't one great big trade. Um, it's about 200 very small trades. And, and that's the other thing. It's understanding how to diversify, how to do the risk management. And every one of those trades also has a limited defined risk. So it isn't this open-ended, you know, people short stocks and they could lose their shirt on that. Uh, we don't do that. I do a trade and I can make $200 or I could lose $800. That's the definition. So I know exactly where I am with that. So it's... Again, something that isn't really very well understood. Uh, retail investors sort of got into options trading really only a couple of years ago with uh, some of the more popular brokerage platforms when they kind of started to offer, offer options. Um, and unfortunately, it kind of encourages people to do the wrong thing. People buy call options. People, you know, buy put options because people think something's going to go down or up. So they treat it like a stock, which is the wrong way of doing it. Uh, or the worst thing is people buy leap options, which is sort of the equivalent of going to a racetrack and betting on the horse to run here in three years' time on a day that you won't be there. It's just gambling, nothing but gambling. And, and of course, you can be right with it if you're lucky if the market continues to go up. But that only works in a, you know, 2020, 2021 kind of a, a bull market where everybody's a genius. Unfortunately, these strategies don't work in, in most other um, markets. So what I basically teach all of my students, and I keep showing it as well on the YouTube channel, is to actually trade the way Wall Street does it. And that's how we make money. Um, all the other stuff, honestly, the wheel strategy and all the stuff that's being peddled to real, um, retail and traders, it's just... It only works in certain markets, and, and that's the problem with it. You really want a strategy that actually works in all markets, um, up, down, sideways. And I mean, the market's been brutal this year, and 
we've made money every single month, uh, double-digit returns every single month. And I think it kind of leads us also into the whole mindset thing, is that people look at that, and you, I get two reactions. One, the guy's crazy. That can't be true. Um, the other one is... It's incredibly risky, otherwise how could he make the returns? And then a smaller percentage of people go, hmm, I'm curious, um, you know, show me more. Um, and unfortunately, we've all been kind of conditioned to think you should get 8% returns a year, you should get a, give a third of it to the tax man, a third of it to your financial advisor and, 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 and bank, and uh, you should be satisfied with the rest. Is that what happens in the financial industry? No. Like, what, you know, why are there flaws and flaws of traders in every bank? Because they make an incredible amount of money. So this whole theory that you can't make money trading is just not true. But if you don't know how to do it, you lose your shirt. So unfortunately, we've just been taught to have very low expectations of, of, of investing, I think. And, uh, and what I really enjoy doing is kind of open people's minds and then actually teaching them and, and seeing the, the joy and jubilation when they start to make these returns. And they're just like, oh my God, how is that possible? I really didn't think it. Like, I've got one of my, my coaching students, he's a, he's, a, he's a U.S. attorney, and he just couldn't, he, could, he, was, he watched me for a year till he kind of... Um, got the um, the nerve in a sense to 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 have a chat with me about it and he is just the most i don't know ardent supporter of it now he's so excited by it why because he's got a great job but he's thinking hey i could actually retire i could actually do this i could have another income stream and i could work less and i think using your motivation of what you actually want in life whether that's paying for your children or you know buying that house or retiring or just living the life you actually want to live if you can channel that as a motivation to become a better investor whether that's just buying stocks for the long haul or you know uh, learning options trading um, that's really what makes the difference so i think we need to all find that within ourselves um, to to kind of really you know make a real difference here to our own lives and everybody else's yeah, definitely. It's fascinating. So you said that, you know, you're market neutral. Does that mean that you're sort of trading volatility or how does that work? So yeah, a lot of it is, so at the moment it's, it's earnings season as, as we're recording this. So we are basically trading volatility. So, you know, volatility goes up into earnings as, as earnings come out. You know what's just happened. So volatility gets, gets crushed. It goes very, very low. Um, and that in itself makes your options trade more profitable. Um, so, so implied volatility is a, a really odd concept, but it's possibly more important than stock prices. Uh, so that's a, that's a big, big thing. And we would then set that up with, um, you still kind of make a directional call, um, but say, you might say, okay, I think it's going to go down. But if it goes up 15 or 20%, I'm still going to make money. So you have this r huge room for error. And that's what makes you money. And that's what makes this way, way, way more probable and profitable than just, you know, buying or shorting the stock where it's 50. I think it's, I think you have a 52% chance of making money on a stock any given day, even if you know all the information that's available in the market. So it's not very good, is it? <laughs> so, um, you know, if you can make that 80 or 90, then it's, it's a whole different, different situation. Yeah, it's interesting. So you might sort of favor a direction where you'd make maximum profit, but you'd still make profit sort of goes against you. Exactly. So you're looking at, at the moment, if you're looking at like consumer stocks, you're thinking, well, they're probably going to be suffering a little bit because, you know, we are heading into a recession, well, probably. Um, and, well, 
quite possibly in it, depending on how you define it. Uh, that's a whole different discussion. Uh, and so you think, okay, that's probably the way it's going. But what if the market thinks, well, the results are slightly better than the bad ones we were expecting, and it does go up 10 or 10 or 15%. Um, you can obviously look back at the market reaction for previous earnings. That gives you some guidance on how far it swings. Um, if you then say double that and make that your trade, so you could be wrong by 20%. Um, so it could go up 20% or it could go down literally to zero. Uh, you are still collecting your, your maximum profit. So that's the sort of setup that, that, that I like to do. And then obviously being diversified, I say obviously, probably isn't obvious, but you want to be in lots of stocks and you want to be in lots of sectors. Um, if all of your trades are on tech stocks, then one will move your entire portfolio, which is a terrible thing to happen. Yeah, and that's that's really interesting. So you, you, you mentioned... Uh, Classic word recession that I think everyone's been talking about. Uh, you know, it's really interesting because I guess we're seeing sort of diverging, uh, information. You know, you could say parts of the Europe have actually grown over the past quarter, maybe due to tourism, whereas, you know, US is sort of, uh, GDP has shrunk. And then, you know, you say Visa, MasterCard, all these companies are saying that spending's still strong, but then some companies have inventory. So I guess what are the indicators that you're watching? And, uh, does that even affect your trading or not really? It doesn't really. It doesn't really. I think in, in, okay, from a, it, it sounds a little bit morally moribund, but from a selfish investor point of view, as long as your income stream is maintained, you should actually love a bear market and you should love a recession because it just means you can buy great stocks at lower prices. So that's a good thing. Uh, from an options trader point of view, it doesn't particularly matter which way the market goes. Uh, now, it is important to be aware of the, 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 the key macro numbers when they do come out because they swing the market. I mean, everything has been moved these last three, four months basically on macro, uh, mainly jobs numbers and inflation numbers, this kind of stuff that the Fed looks at. And of course, the, the Fed talking. So I, I, I do watch that quite carefully. Uh, but, you know, where are we? Where aren't we? I think a lot of this is politics, obviously. I mean, the US has a slightly odd process for defining what a recession is. Uh, you know, there are six men sitting in a dark room somewhere who decided, uh, whereas most of the world just goes with the two quarters of negative growth, um, or rather falling GDP. And Europe is a bit of a basket case. Uh, it, it always has been the way it's set up. Um, you have a common currency, but not a common fiscal policy. That's fundamentally, as a sort of former economist, not a, not a system that will actually work in the long run. And, and we're seeing that, right? We, we, we see it again and again with the debt crisis and Italy is obviously the next one um, that, that's coming here. And, and they're, they're kind of tweaking the system without upsetting the uh, German electorate too much. And, and I'm, I'm, I'm German by, by birth, so I, I understand a little bit of the, the psyche there. They're not, it's not particularly popular to say to German voters, well, why don't we take your taxpayer money and, and send it to Italy? It just isn't as much as people love Italy and, and Italians. It just isn't something that wins you votes. Uh, so that's kind of the, the issue there. And, and they're going to have to fix that eventually. And they kind of did it with COVID, right? They issued EU or Euro bonds, which is the first for, uh, so that all kind of, they, they are going to move to this federal Europe, essentially this US model of Europe, uh, or it'll all fall apart. I think it'll be, be one, of, one or the other. Um, but really as an investor, it doesn't matter a great deal. And I think your, personal fortunes and your ability to be successful are not impacted by these outside things. I mean, they, they really aren't. People like to blame stuff, but it really doesn't get you there. I think 
as long as you know where you want to get to and why you want to get, you, get there, your motivation and your drive will get you there. And, and nothing else really has any impact on it. Yeah, and that's such an important message to take away. So, um, you know, you were based in Asia for, I think it was 15, 16 years, for so quite a while. Uh, you know, do you invest in Asian markets or do you mainly focus on sort of US, Europe, other those kinds? I, I, I do a bit, but I, I'm, I'm mostly in, in, in US listed stocks. Why? It's where most of the demand is. I mean, you know, who are the biggest investors in the world? Institutional American pension funds, banks, and so on. So I think, again, we make our life difficult by investing in our local markets, unless you happen to be born in the US. Uh, and, and, you know, I, I see this with investors who are in, in France or in Germany or in Spain or something, and they have a portfolio of all domestic stocks. Well, are those the greatest in the world? There will be some. I mean, I, there, there are a couple of great European titles. I think um, Novo Nordisk, for example, I think is a great company, or LVMH, I think is a brilliant business. You know, there, there are a couple of outliers out there, but by and large, the really good ones are listed in the US because it's the biggest stock market in the world. If you're really successful, that's where you want to go. So people buy their, their local index just because it's familiar and it's what their local bank is peddling them, but it isn't usually the most profitable place to be. I mean, mo if you compare most European stock indices against the American ones, they'll fall really, really short. I mean, the FTSE is a terrible place to be, um, you know. Uh, there are a lot of these. Um, the, the, the DAX has done reasonably well, but still doesn't be. The, the Euro stocks, whatever, 600 or whatever it is, it's, it's the, probably the worst place to be. Uh, you know, Kakao, all, all of those will give you substantially less returns than their American counterpart. So, why, why do it? <laughs> you know, I, I don't really understand. Why not go where, uh, by definition, the most successful companies in the world are listed uh, in the world's largest stock market with the most demand and the most sophisticated investors? Yeah, and we see, I know in the UK, there's, uh, I think, Arm, which is owned by SoftBank, they're looking to list in the US. And that's what most of these European companies do because, you know, most liquidity, most capital, it's where they exactly. can raise the money. Why wouldn't they? Precisely. They're just going to get a higher multiple. So wh wh why the heck would they list locally? You're only going to list locally if you can't list in the, in the US because you're, you're not quite there yet. So yeah, I mean, th there are great businesses locally everywhere. So I'm not saying, you know, you shouldn't go looking for them. Um, and again, if people work in, in a specific industry and you have an inside understanding, I've got some people who work in, uh, you know, biotech or, you know, they're, 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 they're doctors with an in insight into that and, you know, all their friends are researching at Harvard. You can allocate in that situation a larger proportion of your portfolio to these things, which to me are, I have no idea what's going on there. I would never invest in it because you have an insight. But unless you have that insight, just, you know. Why bother? Why bother with the risk? And it's much the same with, 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 with nationalities. Nationalities really doesn't matter. Even currencies also don't particularly matter in the long run. I mean, again, there are lots of studies on that. Say you are, a, you're British and you, you know, you earn pounds. If you're investing your money in dollar stocks, um, in the long run, does that make any difference? Not really. Yeah, exactly. So, um, you know, I think one thing there you mentioned, you know, you're an option trader. It's really important to have liquidity there as well. Because I guess some markets with options, if they have low liquidity, then you can really, you know, get hammered sometimes with the trade. So I guess that's another reason to maybe do options trading in the US in the largest liquidity markets. Absolutely. So there is some, exactly like you say, there's, there, there is liquidity and open interest. For every contract you can look up, 
Um, and there are really nice tools like optionstrat.com, for example, is a brilliant tool that visualizes it for you, shows you a little bar. And, and yeah, if there is no liquidity, what does it mean? Well, you might be able to get into the trade, but you might not be able to get out of the trade when you want to. So you might be sitting on 100% profit and you can't close it. And then when it suddenly becomes minus 200%, you also can't do anything about it. So you're just sitting there like going, oh my God, what's happening? Uh, so that's, that's really not, not something you want to do. And, and that's why I... I, I push all of my students to paper trade. So there are great paper trading platforms um, in the UK. It would be Interactive Brokers. If you're in, in the Americas, it'd be, be, be Think or Swim that allow you to basically trade as if it was real money, but it's essentially sort of monopoly money. Um, but the experience is the same. So you can make those mistakes. You can get those experiences. And therefore, when this happens to you with your real money, you know how to react and you know how to adjust and you, and you know what to do. So um, I'm, I'm a huge fan of that. So you can essentially learn without any, any downside. You know, you're, you're not risking anything at all here. Yeah, definitely. And I guess, you know, you, you've taught quite a lot of people. What are the greatest mistakes you see them making? Is it more just, you know, putting too much money into one stock or what, what have you seen? Uh, so... Okay, with stocks, definitely putting too much money into one stock or one sector, which is basically the same thing. Um, with options, it's actually much the same. People like, like to do one or two or three trades. The riskiest portfolio is the one with one or two or three trades. Like, you're going to want to have a lot more than that to kind of uh, balance it out. So if you, if you've got an Apple trade and you're now setting up a Netflix, a Microsoft and some other tech company trade, you're not really adding anything. You're just creating more risk. So why not go and do a Home Depot trade or a, you know, AMD or a, I don't know, Marathon Oil or Mercado Libre or something. Something that isn't, is, has very low correlation to the other stuff. Um, that's how you improve your probability. And, and the way I always describe it is you want to be the casino, not the gambler. So a casino sits there and has a table with a limit, right? Uh, so say it's um, roulette and red or black, you think it's 50-50. It's not. It's 47.44%, I think. It's the, the likelihood that you will win because the house has an edge. And what do they do? Well, they know that if you walked in with $10 million and put it on red and you won, it might wipe them out. So what do they do? They say there's a limit on this table of $100. So they force you to make that trade a thousand times and that's how they, how they win. And options trading is very much the same. We want to be that house that does a thousand. I mean, that's a little bit of an exaggeration, but you know, it does very, very large numbers of very small trades that are diversified and therefore on average we're going to make very nice returns and we don't get wiped out on, on, on the one thing and I think the same can be applied to stock investing essentially it's um, don't put all your money on one thing it's just it's just going to lead to tears essentially so there's a cat meowing next to me oh, that's all right no problem <laughs> always love an animal appearance <laughs> here we go there here we go. go hey oh <laughs> uh, what's the name <laughs> uh, this is Tallulah uh, also known as our chief financial analyst around here. Oh, uh, yes, exactly. And, uh, Crunching all the numbers. <laughs> <laughs> Crunch, exactly. Giving all the financial advice around here. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. I think it's, uh, do you have a dog as well? It's a Winston, I think I saw. I do. Yeah. I have, a, I, have a, yeah. I have a golden, I have four rescue creatures, one golden retriever and, and three cats. Um, but yeah, this one and, and, and Winston make more appearances than the other two who tend to sit more uh, somewhere in the sunshine and, and, and enjoy themselves. Yeah, exactly. That's smart. So, uh, Felix, thank you so much for your time. Um, my last question is, what is one message that you want people to take away uh, from the interview? You can make a heck of a lot of money as an investor. And you can be literally as successful as a Buffett or anybody out there. A great deal of their success is time and sticking to it and being consistent 
and being confident in their investments, not in a sort of um, kind of religious fervor for one stock because it happens to be popular, but because you actually understand and understand that investment. And so I really would encourage everyone to take time every single week to 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 invest in yourself as investors because investing should make nine. 90 or 95% of, of, of all your wealth should come from that and not from working. So if you're only working and you've got a great job, and you've got a great income, you're still missing out on, on 90% of what you should be achieving. And, and that makes the difference between a nice life and a truly fantastic life, which means you can do whatever you want. You can contribute to others. And, and, and that is, I think, where the fulfillment kicks in. I think essentially that's all what we all need. We need to have a, have a fulfilled life and really money is, is, you know, however you look at it, it's a huge part of that. It gives you freedom. Yeah, and that's vital. So, Felix, thanks again for your time. And, uh, you know, you mentioned your own YouTube channel and I think the Goat Academy. I'm not sure, is that the best place to find you and your work and what you do? Yeah, sure. If you go to goatacademy.org, uh, .org, um, lots of free resources on there. Um, also, feel free to, like my contact details are on there, feel free to reach out, um, book a call, have a chat with us. I'm super happy to talk to literally um, a- anyone. And if I can give you a little bit of guidance and a little bit of encouragement to kind of stay on the path, then, um, you know, it'd be, I'd be very, very happy to do that. So, yeah, go to website go to academy.org and um anthony absolute pleasure to be here thank you very much for your time uh, keep keep doing what you're doing spreading financial knowledge it's fantastic and um yeah thanks very much yeah thank thank you so much so felix thanks again thank you so much for listening and if you enjoyed the episode please subscribe so you're notified when new podcasts are released i hope you're leaving with some great value about investing trading and finance see you on the next show